Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. My name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I, I'm really excited for this series. Um, it, it's, this is a series called Faith for Exiles, and it is a series about what it means to live as a follower of Jesus among the cultural complexities of our day. Now, here is something fun. I've got a whole heap of, of back info that you really need to understand what we're we're going to be talking about in this series because it is based upon a whole bunch of research and a whole bunch of work that's been done over, over decades of researching information about what it means particularly for young adults to follow Jesus. And here's the really fun part. I don't think God wants us to talk about that tonight. So I'm going to take those pages and pages and put them aside. You're welcome, by the way. Yeah. Put them aside. Shorten. No, no, I won't make that promise. But I'm going, to, I'm going to get to the message now because our job is really to hear the voice of God and be obedient to it. Amen? Our, our job as followers of Christ, you can almost put it that simply, is to hear the voice of God and be obedient to what it's saying. It really is that simple. Now, for all of us, this looks different. We've got different passions, different skills, different vocations, different callings. But the voice of God is always consistent. You can always find it by processing it through your Bible. Right? If you're not sure what God is saying, pick up your Bible. That's the quickest way to do it. And we always do it in community. I'll get into some more of that later. But tonight, I'm going to start by getting into the Word of God. Is that good? Yeah. Join with me by heading to Daniel chapter 1. Over this series, we will be living in the book of Daniel. And um, this is important because Daniel was somebody who was a cultural Exile. This phrase, faith for exile, is exactly what it sounds like. But just really quickly, if you're not familiar with the word exile, an exile is somebody who has been banished, in essence. They've been sent from where their home is out, or they've been taken. And so in Daniel's case, he'd been taken. I'll get to Daniel's context in a second, but let's just get straight into the word. I sense that's what the Lord wants us to do tonight. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his, king unit, his chief eunuch, rather, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive. I mean, so far, this just sounds like every single woman in Encounters list, right? <laughs> Saying, and capable of serving in the king's palace. Suitable for instruction in all wisdom. Anyway, he was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. That three years is really important. Put that in the back of your mind. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Now, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion. 
from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It's good. Now, why did I read this lengthy passage from Daniel? In, in those first verses, we get something very important. Daniel was a cultural exile. So Daniel was a young man from the tribe of Judah, a, a micro history of Israel. Uh, they finally get a king, Saul, he's terrible. They get the rightful king, David, he's pretty good. They have Solomon, he's good. And then he Peter's off a cliff. And then they have this series of bad, 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 good, bad, 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 good, bad, bad, bad kings. And that's kind of how Israel goes. Sin, sin, sin. Oh, we'll try and come back. Sin, 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 sin. Try and come back. Sin, sin, sin. That's kind of the history of Israel. A really, really short history of Israel. (laughs) And ultimately what happens is the kingdom splits. They have a, a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. The northern kingdom rebels more often against the, the neighboring countries. They try and fight against it. More importantly than the fight, they ignore the word of God. They ignore the voice of God that they're hearing. They are hearing it and they're ignoring it. And so they get carted off into slavery. Judah lasts longer. They're a bit more faithful. They make wiser decisions. But eventually they too continue to reject the word of God coming to them. And they get carted off into slavery. And so the Babylonians come and they take over Israel. And instead of just coming in and saying, we're expanding our lands, they say, sure, we're going to dominate them. We're going to destroy their infrastructure. Then we're going to take their young leadership and take them back to our place and train them for three years. They were turning the Israelites into Babylonians. Now, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. I mean, if you've heard of Daniel before, it's probably to do with lions, right? He gets thrown into a den of lions. So, you know, it gets worse before it gets better for Daniel. (laughs) But he gets thrown into a den of lions and he comes out okay. But this background is important to understanding his sense of call. Because when you think of the Israelites and you think of enslavement, you might go instinctively to Egypt, And they were in labor gangs there. And the Israelites are laboring to build the mighty works of the Egyptians. And, you know, they're still lasting. So good works, but tough labor. And eventually Moses, of course, comes and frees the Israelites from that, brings them out towards the promised land. But this is a different kind of enslavement. Now, while that stuff is probably going on, this was a cultural enslavement. Rather than simply saying, work here, they gathered around them all the things that they wanted them to be like, and they just sowed that into them for years. They were saying, I bet we can bleed your culture out of you. We can leech it out of you just by surrounding you with good things, good food, good drink, different culture, rejecting gods, etc., etc., etc. And the problem with Daniel and his friends being assimilated by this culture was not necessarily that the culture is good or bad. Because if you've heard me talk about culture before, culture is just culture, right? You can have good culture, you can have bad culture, you have good culture with bad elements, bad culture with good elements. But all in all, it's, it's not about that. It's about what's your true north? 
Is following God your true north or is it not? And the entire aim of the Babylonian culture was to subvert the worship of God and to say, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Come under the Babylonian infrastructure where there's a free-for-all as long as you worship our gods. As long as you do what we tell you to do in these spaces, you've got freedom. You can do whatever you want. Isn't that better anyway? Do you really want to go back to Judah? And this is the kind of cultural pressure that Daniel and his friends were under. So here's what we see happening. They have this, this reprogramming that, that happens. And so in, in this cultural pressure that we see, this is not the same as, say, a Korean family moving over from Korea. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, what it looks like to have a, a multicultural and, and these layers of, of culture that happen when an immigrant family comes across. So let's say a migrant Korean family moves from Korea to Australia. Generally speaking, they, they form a com- Korean community because most of them don't speak English at that point. And so they form a community with other Koreans who eat their food, speak their language, who understand them. It makes perfect sense, right? This is where you get Korean-speaking churches from. And then they have kids, but their kids are born in Australia. And so they're living at home with their parents who mostly speak Korean and probably a little bit of English by this point. And then they're going to school where everybody speaks English and they get caught between two worlds. And this is the the kind of cultural pressure of being a second culture kid. And generally speaking, if you're a third culture kid, if you're you're the third generation, by this point, you're you're pretty much just an Aussie. You you just sound like, you know, you have a slightly different skin colour, that's all. Apart from that, you sound the same, you basically think the same because your parents weren't the first gen, that was the second gen. Make sense? Again, a micro version. You know things are going to go well when you just kind of yada yada like huge moments in people's lives like that. It's always going to go well. But that's basically the way generations work when they move from one country to another. And it doesn't matter how that works. If it's a different language, a different culture, there's a sense of changing the longer you're there. Now, that's one thing. But what sometimes happens is you get Koreans and lots of cultures, actually, but I've noticed this with Koreans in particular, that they'll come to Australia... And they'll look around and they'll be like, huh, my name doesn't seem to sound like everybody else's. I'll take a different name. And so they'll have a Korean name, but then they'll also take an English name or an Australian, you know, a Western name. And so I have lots of friends whose names are things like Paul and Noah, but they have Korean names that were their birth name. My favorite is my friend Ace. He came over to Australia and he's like, I'm going to be called Ace. Like, that's a swag move right there. That's incredible. And he is like that. Like, that's the thing. He's got, he's incredible. Anyway, Ace Kim, look him up. What a dude. So Ace comes over here, looks around. He's like, you know what? To fit in better, I'm, I'm sort of a first culture Korean. I'm going to call myself Ace and everyone's going to love me immediately. And they, and they do, because how do you get past that? And the difference here is when you go to Babylon, is Daniel and his friends go over there and instead of looking around, they didn't migrate, they were enslaved. And in the enslavement, they're taken over. And instead of looking around and going, oh, I'd fit in better and I'd feel more comfortable if I chose a name, their captors said, in order to assimilate you into what we want, we will give you a name. Now, the name Daniel means God is my judge. And then he's taken that away from him and he's given the name Belteshazzar. Now, let's be honest, much cooler name. No offense to the Daniels in the room. Great name. Daniel's a lovely name. But Belteshazzar is very intimidating. But Belteshazzar means protect the life of the king. Daniel's identity is God is my judge. I stand under Yahweh. That's my spiritual authority. Everything I do in life is to know God. And instead they say, no, 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 no. 
No, forget that. No, no, no. Protect the life of the king. That's your role. Forget God. Protect the king. In fact, the prefix bell comes from one of the ancient Mesopotamian deities, one of the false gods that Daniel was forced to come under. They are assimilating him by force into this culture. If we were to do this now, we would probably call it colonialism. Get the picture? Good. So the ultimate goal was that when these intelligent upper-class young leaders are sent back to repopulate Israel, they're basically zombies, Babylonian zombies in Hebrew bodies, walking around creating a Babylonian culture, destroying not only their homeland and their traditions and their languages and these things we hold dear, but the worship of the one true God. So Daniel steps into this space and he is under immense cultural pressure and he has to decide what to do. Because for Daniel, the most important thing in his life was his relationship with God. And we see that happening again and again through the book of Daniel. We see his passion for God, but we see the relationship as well. He's actually ahead of his time in that sense. He's a little foretaste of Jesus in that we see the way he pursues relationship, not just religion. Hold that as well. We'll get back to that. So Daniel pursues this, and he has to ask the question, in a culture where around me are 500 pressures being put on me, where do I take a stand? Because if I take 500 stands, I'm not going to do it. And if I take no stands, I'm just going to become Babylonian. How do I retain my identity? And he does exactly the right thing. He says, I need to do the thing that's most going to help me stay as a follower of God. And so for him, he says, I'm going vegan. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm going vegan. I'm not going to eat these meats that are sacrificed to false idols. And he says, test me for 10 days. And the eunuch is terrified. He's giving the whole, like, I'm just doing my job here, man. I just, I don't, it's not about me. It's not about me. Because he's terrified that if Daniel makes a stand, it's going to reflect on him. Because, friends, when you make a stand for God, it stands out around you as well. It impacts those around you. So Daniel makes a stand. He says, just test me for 10 days. I trust that God will do a work in those 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, after a plant-based diet only, Daniel and his friends look better than everybody else, which frankly is infuriating, but it probably fits, right, with what we know of plant-based diets. Can I hear an amen, James and Ari? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> they looked good. They were already handsome, and at the end, they were even handsomer. It's like, oh. Fine, okay, you can stay on your plant diet. We'll, we'll give the meat sacrifice to idols someone, somewhere else. Now, was this about meat? No. This was about where had that meat been first. The sacrifice to false gods, Daniel said, you know what? This is where I make my stand. I can stand here and I won't be immediately killed. I have a chance to make an impact for God, but I will do it and I will do it. Why? Not because I don't eat meat or ethical reasons. Like they're, they're perfectly adequate reasons. But for Daniel, he was saying, I do this. Because when I reject that, I reject the false gods of Babylon in my heart, in my mind, in my spirit. That's far more important than going, I will do nothing culturally in Babylon. Those people were called monks. They pull themselves away from culture and leave culture as it is. And that, I believe, friends, is not what we're called to do. So we, we hear this, and for, Babylon, uh, for Daniel, it was Babylon, but for us, it's, it's, it's something a bit different. I'd call it digital Babylon. The year 1440, Johannes Gutenberg became very, very famous for inventing something. Anyone know what it was? 
Printing press. Printing press. <laughs> the German teacher was so close, though. <laughs> Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, what did that mean? That meant an idea could go from someone's mind out to the people fast, because suddenly you can mass produce this idea. The first thing he does, anyone know what he prints? A Bible. Absolutely. Gutenberg prints a Bible. 2007, the next great revolution in communication happens. Who knows what happened? The iPhone. The iPhone is invented and mass-produced. Now, this is different from, say, a flip phone. If you've ever had one, you're like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it is different from a flip phone because one is like, yep, you can call, you can message, and if you're really advanced, you can send some terrible emails. But the iPhone is just, here is a tiny computer in your pocket. Good luck not getting distracted. Go. And so the iPhone comes in and it disrupts our lives. It digitally distracts us and disorients us. So instead of just being on hand to receive calls and messages, which frankly is pretty wise and allows us to be rove around and, and have more freedom and not be tethered to the home phone, suddenly we've got this computer in our pocket disrupting, distracting us at all times. Babylon has gone from being a land we live in to a culture that lives in us. Very, very quickly. Digital Babylon is here, my friends. And Steve Jobs was the author of it. Now, with digital Babylon really, really fast, I've got to say, it, it, it's not a conspiracy theory. No one sat down and went, I wonder how we can stop every Christian from focusing on the Bible. Okay? This is not, this is not a thing that happened. It's just marketing. It's just entrepreneurs. It's Silicon Valley. It's fast food. It's a consumerist uh, capitalist society. This is just what happens when people's ultimate goal is to say, how can I get as much attention and finance as possible from everyone out there? Right? I just, I just want you to know that this isn't about a conspiracy theory. This is just about how our culture has begun to form around the attention economy and the financial economy, obviously. Anyway, God blesses Daniel. Daniel is this stranger in a strange land, and God blesses him with influence and with power and with authority. But, but what we see from this, forget the attention economy for a minute. What we see in this is much more important. Daniel is living in exile, not because he's in someone else's country, but because that country is trying to live in him. And for us, we are exiles permanently. We are the people of God. We are destined for the city of God, as Augustine once said. We are made for something greater. Yet wherever we walk on this earth, we are slightly dislocated. We are dispossessed. We, we are in an uneven inheritance. The Garden of Eden is not in existence right now. We are trying to work out how to follow God in a broken world filled with broken people like me and you. And where we get inspiration from Daniel is not only about living as an exile in Babylon, it's about the way he pursued the presence of God. See, Daniel, as you read through the book of Daniel, one of the things that stands out is his faithfulness to God and his willingness to hear what God is saying and to be obedient. God gives this dream to Daniel later, and this real irony is that all these other people had dreams, and they came to Daniel, and Daniel was like, this is what it means, this is what it means, this is what it means. Then God gives Daniel this dream, and the first thing that happens is Daniel's standing there going, I don't know what this means. I don't know what's happening. And he has to ask an angel in his dream to start interpreting it for him. This is the level of complexity in Daniel. But throughout this, my favorite part of Daniel is not in Daniel chapter 2 when you, where you see his prayer life under stress because all of us have a good prayer life under stress. You know, like 
Most atheists will slam on the brakes and yell, oh God, if they think they're going to hit something, right? They might just think about it in a slightly different way to we do. <laughs> but that's under stress. When he's not under stress, Daniel goes home morning, afternoon, evening, prays. He just says, I am going to cut out time here. I'm going to cut out time here. I'm going to cut out time here. And his enemies found out about it, and they used it against him. And Daniel knew about it. He says, I'm going to go home and pray. It is in God's hands. You know that Babylon is not in you when you can keep a vibrant, rich prayer life. When you say, my intimacy with Jesus is more important than anything else. Let me just really quickly get to the five things we're going to talk about through this series. Tonight, I want to talk about intimacy with Jesus and move through that. The second thing we're going to talk about next week, we're going to talk about what it means to know the times and and be able to understand our own culture, that is to be culturally engaged leaders, which is important for us. In the third week, we're going to talk about how to bridge generation gaps and have intergenerational relationships that are transformational uh, for us and our families. Basically, what we're going to do there is put the phrase, OK, boomer to death. Because, great, we all had a good laugh, and now you are causing bigger and bigger schisms between generations and missing out on the wealth of wisdom and experience and life and kindness of those people who have lived before us. We need to put that stuff to death. Otherwise, guess what the Gen Zs are all saying? Guess what the Gen Alphas are all saying? You know, it's coming around. I'm just saying. Here's the fourth one, faith at work. We're going to talk about what it means to be vocationally sold out for Jesus, no matter what your job is. And the last week, we're going to talk about seeing mission as vocation, which is something we've been talking about at Encounter for a very long time. What does it mean to engage in lifelong acts of countercultural mission? But let's go back to intimacy, because Daniel had an intimate relationship with God, but no one had a more intimate relationship with God than Jesus. So often, and I've said this here before, Jesus would have these huge moments where he'd feed the 5,000 and people would be like, Jesus, you've done a miracle. Look what's happening. And he's like, it's great, isn't it? All right, deal with these folk. I'm going up a mountain to pray. They'd be like, there's 5,000 people here and they all want your attention. He's like, I know. I'm going to be with my heavenly father. Jesus would leave people who wanted ministry. Hear me. He would leave people who needed his help in order to further his relationship with God the Father. That was the value and importance that Jesus put on that relationship. Jesus ministered not in order to get back to that place, but from that place, from that place. For me, I find, as I was just thinking and praying, going, God, God, when's my most intimate time with you? And, and he just gently said, it's when you're not rushed. It's not about being busy. Everyone's busy all the time, right? Like, how are you going? Busy. Yeah, really busy. Busy. I, did, I literally just said it to Josh like 10 minutes ago before the service started. Busy. Yeah, busy. Yeah. But busy is one thing. Rushed is another. Rushed is when you have no margin for God to speak to you. And when you have no margin, you have no capacity, no ears to hear, no eyes to see what God is doing around you. God is doing a miracle in every one of your lives. And we don't see it in each other because we're too rushed. We're too rushed. We need to curate an intimacy with God that will last the test of time because this series is about developing resilient disciples, not disciples who make a decision for Jesus and then do whatever they want, and not disciples who look back and go, oh, yeah, I did that one day, not disciples who just come to church and that's good enough for them, but disciples who are deeply, deeply passionate 
about their relationship with Jesus. And if you're in this room and, and you're what you might call a seeker, like if somebody said, how would you define yourself? You might say spiritual but not religious or something like that. We're so glad you're here. And this is for you. This is for you. Because what you've been searching for is not a religion called Christianity. It is a person called Jesus. And what we're preaching tonight and what we're declaring is that if you will give this intimacy with Jesus, this relationship, this living, breathing, dynamic relationship with the creator of the universe, a chance, it will fully transform your life. So let me get into why. As the researchers went through what is going to change and challenge people, they came up with these, these different ideas that I talked about before, those five topics that we're going to go over in the next five weeks are five traits of resilient disciples. They're consistent across young adults who grew up in the church. These, those five things, being intimate with Jesus, knowing their times, bridging generation gaps, using their faith at work, and having mission as their primary sense of call and vocation, and doing that counterculturally. Let's talk about what they learned about intimacy with Jesus. The researchers came out with six things that if you put them into place will serve as seeds your intimacy with Jesus. Why seeds? Because seeds grow, but you've got to water them, you've got to care for them, you've got to nurture them, you've got to nourish them. You can't just throw them down there and hope for the best. Okay? There is no cure-all for finding your way with Jesus. There is one very simple way to find faith in Jesus, and that is to say Jesus is Lord, to say with your mouth and declare with your heart, you know, and, and to repent of your sin and come to him. That's how you find Jesus, but to live in the way of Jesus, which is, friends, the whole point. The whole point is that it's not about a moment, it's about a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. To live in the way of Jesus, you've got to sow these seeds and then plant and then water and then nurture them and curate them. So let's just go to these six points, and I'm going to go through them really quickly. I promise. Six key points of how to develop intimacy with Jesus based on research from the Barna Group. Number one, intimacy in community. Intimacy and community. This is the main thing they found keeps people close to Jesus is they go to church. Like this, it is wild to me how many people go to me, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I just go, what are you talking about? You are talking rubbish. Like what, I think what you're saying really is you believe in Jesus, but you don't go to church. But to follow Jesus, you need to do that and live in community. Otherwise, you're in an echo chamber of one. You need people around you to encourage you in the things you are doing that are wise and to discourage you in the things you are doing that are foolish according to the way of Jesus. It's, it's a non-negotiable. Now, whether you call that Sunday church is up for grabs, right? That doesn't matter as much. But can I tell you now that if you want to follow Jesus in digital Babylon, the most countercultural thing you can do is start by turning up every Sunday. I, I know this is wild. I'm not asking for your money here. I'm asking for your presence for the sake of the presence of others. You bring something we all need. We bring something you need. This is how the body of Christ works. Don't run from it. Don't run from it. I know how easy it is to like do brunch or go to the movies. I love those things. They're great. But you need to put this as a pillar in your life. One pillar in your life. So if you are doing intentional community, being intimate in community, you're experiencing Jesus together, go to church, be in life groups, develop spiritual friendships, throw parties and hang out with each other at those parties. Christians should throw the best parties. That's a whole other sermon. Anyway, whole other sermon. Let, let me say one thing really quickly. Story, parable of the lost sheep. 
Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. It's great, right? Gives us all the warm fuzzies. And then he says to the one, you're doing great. You've seen me? You're doing great. Keep doing your thing. And he leaves them and goes back, right? No, he picks up the one and brings him back to the 99. Okay, right? Jesus knew what he was on about. I'm just saying. In digital Babylon, gathering regularly, physically for church is a powerful witness. In a world of find yourself, it's admitting you can't and you need other people to help you do that. And, and we know that, but when we come here and we speak it out, we actually live it, we act it. So that's the first thing, intimacy and community. Here's the second one, intimacy intentionally, intentionally. It's what we might call spiritual practices. Now, the most obvious spiritual practices are to say, pray and read your Bible. I, it's, I always find it a bit of a crack up when as a pastor, I'm going, oh, how are you going with uh, reading your Bible? And like, without fail, people are like, well, it could be better. Like, okay. Yeah, I mean, everything could be better. I'm, I'm just, are you doing it? Are you creating a rhythm where you're carving out space to let God speak to you? I find it baffling, and I'll just speak for me here, right? This isn't, I am not up on a pedestal. I, I mean, I literally am, but I'm not on a spiritual pedestal here. I do this too. I go through times where I'm like, just too busy today. Like, what am I doing? I'm telling myself that the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus. Then I'm telling him I'm too busy to spend time with him. It's insanity, but this is what we do. Going to church is a spiritual practice. Going to life groups is a spiritual practice. Developing friendships, iron sharpening iron type of stuff, that's a spiritual practice. There is a whole host of spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that will get you growing and thriving in your faith. But if you want to do two, read your Bible just a little bit each day. Consistency rather than length, okay? Consistency is more important to build habits. And pray. Find a time and a space just for a few minutes each day just to speak to God and let God speak to you. Really consistent stuff. I, I know. Who would have thought you were going to turn up to church and the pastor would say, read your Bible and pray? This is innovative stuff, guys. This is why they pay me the big bucks. Oh, look, here's the other thing. Intentional intimacy. God is going to call some of you here today to give up something good for something better. Now, this sort of intentional intimacy is where you're doing something in your life and God says, I want you to stop. I, I was spending some time with a, with a guy on um, Friday night who'd come down to share at this conference and he was, he was in a band and he was telling me about that at one point he, he left the band because God had told him to and he wasn't in this huge pattern of sin. He wasn't breaking down as a human being. In fact, he thought he was doing God's call and he felt God say, stop, you need to stop this now. Go back and be in my local church. And he's going, but, but I'm doing what you told me to do. And God's, God's in effect says, yeah, you were doing what I told you to do. Now I'm telling you to do this. Obedience is part of an intentional intimacy. And I think it's the hardest thing because we just don't want to. All the little Babylonian gods are much easier to follow. Why? Because you can pick up little Marduk and carry him around with you and then put him on the shelf and wander around and do your own thing. You're, and people are like, are you following God? Yeah, he's there. He's up on the shelf. <laughs> you, you being a Christian? Yeah, yeah, look. I've got a Bible verse and a, and a frame on my wall. I'm a Christian. Oh. Are you, do you hang out with other Christians? Oh, no, 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 not really. Not really. Oh, you, you pray? Do you, do you have any kind of relationship with God at all? Like, ah, oh, I don't like using the word God. Like, okay, I think we're done here. That's fine. <laughs> hey, look... It, it's, it's about the God you can't control. 
That's the difference between the Babylonian God and the Hebrew God. The true God cannot be controlled, cannot be put in a box, cannot be put up on a shelf, cannot be knitted into an inspirational verse for the back of your toilet door. By all means, do that. But that's not God. So leave what is good for what's better, intentional intimacy. Third one, intimacy personally. Okay, Intimacy in community, intimacy intentionally, intimacy personally. I cannot live out your faith for you. Now, here's the thing, and I'll get to the... This is about going to church, yes. Thinking church is the solution for your spiritual problems, no. Okay? This is a spiritual practice being here. And I'm privileged that I get to bring the word of God and Pastor Jen gets to bring the word of God and the people who come and preach and share. We minister and we pray and we dig ourselves into this to bring it to you. But this is not your faith. It is not your faith. This is an offering, a seed for your faith to bring it to life. But only you can water that garden. In fact, in a church this size, I can't pass you all anyway. That's why we have life groups. So that if you are struggling, you can go, I've got a life group leader. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk through this. We've got that relationship in place. Because the power of God is not in me. It's in the people of God. It's in all the people of God, the whole people of God. You need to develop that relationship personally. If you don't have spiritual practices of your own, It'll fall down, okay? I, I can't do that for you. Let's move on to number four. Nice quick one, right? Here's number four. Intimacy at walking pace. You know, in our relationship with God, nobody has ever said to me, how's your run with God going? They call it a walk with God because God's slowing down to be at our pace. And sometimes we try and outpace him. He's like, no, 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 slow down, slow down. Don't rush so much. I've got some stuff to teach you here. It's like, no, no, yeah, but I, I want to get to what you're sending me to. Don't just run to the destination. Be with me on this journey. I'm walking with you. Why? Because God is forming us. He is trying to conform us into the image of his son. See, God is trying to do a cultural work in you exactly the same as digital Babylon. But he's trying to form you into something different. Instead of a consumer of products, of the digital world, instead of going, me, 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 God is saying, stop. Center yourself around who I am. Walk with me. Don't rush. Don't hurry. Walk with me. Here's the thing about that. No, I'm going to leave. I'll come back to that. It's all right. (laughs) Number five. Number five. Intimacy with integrity. Now, character is is the most important thing that you can cultivate in your life, by the way, more than any skill you can develop. Develop your character. But what I mean when I say intimacy with integrity is not character. It's about the integrity of your relationship with God. Only you can do it for you. But here's the bit where we sometimes get tripped up. We have a moment with God. We say, yes, God, I love you. I'm going to follow you. I'll, I'll do the church thing. I'll do the life group thing. I'm committed. And then in the back of your head is this little voice that says, are you sure God is really real? Or why? What about this doubt I have? It's just, just ticking there in the back of your mind. The problem we've had in the church for so many years is our response to this voice has been to go, hold on. Let me just repress it really, really well. Padlock the box. It's done. It's good. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. And then the pressure starts to build because you're not trusting God. And God's just there saying, 
mate, I created you, doubts and all, maybe bring the questions to me. And the integrity of our relationship with Jesus is to do two things. Number one, if you have doubts, bring them to God and do it in community. Don't be afraid of the questions. Don't pretend they don't exist. Research them. Answer them. It is extraordinary what God has done already. He is not afraid of your doubts. Here's the second thing, though. If you are the sort of person that you naturally have doubts, and you're like, well, I don't know about this, I don't know about that, you might just be doing that with no integrity anyway. You just want to stir the pot. You don't want answers at all. You want to be master of your own domain, and so you don't want to let anyone else speak into that, including God. Yeah, I've got a cross on the wall. I'm fine. I've got some doubts, so like that's because you're not really looking for answers. If you don't have that integrity, don't worry about it. It's just, that's pride speaking. But if you don't have the integrity to uncover and examine the questions, you're going to start to shatter at some point. God is not afraid of our questions. Bring them. It doesn't matter what it is. Bring them. That's another reason we have life groups. You can do this stuff in community. Yeah. I have this question, and someone else is like, oh, I have that question also. What? More than one person had the same doubt? Of course they do. Bring them up in community. It's fine, okay? God's not worried about them. Here's number six, and Ben, you guys can come back up. Intimacy for direction. Intimacy for direction. The purpose of intimacy, ultimately, is so that we can know what God is calling us to do and where God is calling us to go because we know that God is trying to conform us to be like Jesus. We know it's a process. We know it's something personal. It's no, we know it's something intentional. We know it's something we have to do in community. But it's just hard. Like, it's just hard to do. And often we, we go around and we're like, oh, we got this and this and this, and I'm, I'm trying to do it all. And all we need to do is stop and listen to God. That's it. That's it. That's absolutely it. Stop and listen. Stop and listen. And when God says something... Do what he says. You know, I was, I was talking with our, our creative team earlier today about the prophetic. And one of the great challenges of the prophetic is just to do what God is saying, even though it feels super weird. So that is to say, if somebody's giving a prophecy, something that can only be from God, that we actually do it. That's the real struggle with the prophetic. But when God speaks, this thing we've been searching for, this thing we've been hungry for, to hear the voice of God and experience the presence of God. Because that's why we're here. We want something bigger. We, we recognize there is something more than we have right now. We want it. We want to hear from it. And then God says, I'm here. I'm speaking. This is what I'm saying. And we go, I don't like it. I mean, we do, don't we? We can't just rationalize away our disobedience. We can't. We've got to actually listen to what Jesus is saying and do it. And so often, friends, the challenge is like my friend who is in this band, that we are being called not from something bad to something good, but from something good to something great. That's the real challenge. If you can see something in your life and you're like, I am a drug addict and I have been for 10 years, and God's like, don't be a drug addict. Very few people are like, I don't agree with that. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? It's where you go, oh, I'm pretty comfortable with my four-bedroom, two-bathroom home, and yeah, good job, good life, nothing really rattling the chains too much. And God's saying, I want you to downsize, and I want you to give that money to a missionary who's in Ethiopia. And you're like, nah, that wouldn't be from God. 
involves too much finance, involves too much sacrifice. It involves me hearing and doing. And God says, you claim you want intimacy with me. This thing, which above all else is the number one trait of disciples who stand the test of time. But then when I say to you, do it, you go, I don't want to. Now, I believe me, I get it. I get it. But it really comes down to this simple question. Who do you want to speak into your life more? Son of God or, or you? And for many of us, we choose ourselves. It's very understandable. It's not going to transform your life. It's not going to transform your family. It's not going to bring power and life and vibrancy that you've never had before. And that's what God wants to do. To finish up, I, um, as, as we talk about intimacy, I, it really just forces, it forced me to reflect anyway. And it, like the sermon always preaches you before you get to preach the sermon. It's horrible. I hate it. And God's like, say this, do this. I'm like, I don't want to. And God's like, I think you need to jump into the word. But I got this big introduction. It's very impressive. I wrote it. it took hours. And God's like, I don't, I don't. Yeah, great. Well done. <laughs> God's not impressed by my striving to impress him. He's saying, Mike, I just, I just want you to listen to me. And I had to go back and I go, where was the moment when intimacy with Jesus became my priority? And for me, it was when I was on this camp. I was 22. It was the first camp I'd ever led on. I came to faith as a young adult. I was 19. had no idea what was going on. The power of God and the love of God hit me. And I was just a, a bawling mess. And I spent the next three years of my life kind of stumbling around go, going, I think I'm following Jesus. And every now and then people tell me I'm doing well or badly, but not very often. I wish I'd had more people tell me the truth. And then I got to 22. And I was at this camp and the preacher was speaking. I don't remember who the preacher was. I don't remember what they were speaking about. But I had this moment when God said to me, is this your life or is this a hobby? Is, is this something you agree with? You know, the census is coming next year. Tick Christian. I don't care. I, don't, I, I really couldn't care less what the number of Christian, so-called Christian is in Australia according to the census. What I care about is what the Spirit of God is bringing alive in people's hearts. And, and for me, the deep challenge was, what are you willing to die to in order to live for me the rest of your life? Well before I was called into ministry, well before God said anything to me about being a pastor, it was, what are you going to put to death to find new life in me? The great heroes of faith again and again and again, the people that we look up to are people that had to die to something to live for Christ. John Wesley famously was a failed missionary, comes back, and he has this second experience. He's already a Christian. He has this second conversion where he's in a, a prayer meeting and they're reading out the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on the Romans. This is not like, this is not like you know, the most scintillating novel you've ever read. It is the introduction to Luther's commentary on the Romans. And as it is being read and as these words are being proclaimed, Wesley's heart is strangely warmed and something happens to him. The Spirit fills him and he, and he talks about it as if it's this second conversion. It's not a conversion from out of Christ to in Christ. It's a conversion from I agree to I'm all in, head first. Christ is the anchor to my soul. And he develops this personal intimacy with Jesus that sees him ride around from town to town, reading his Bible from town to town on horseback. He was busy, found time on horseback. 
I think we can find the time. And he started planting churches. And you and I are here because of that. So the question is, where are you up to in that journey? Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.